How are you? What's up, Carlo? How are you? Well, at the moment, I'm frustrated with Twitter. They really need to get their act together with this uh, issue of privacy settings and engagement. Um, our original show that we had tweeted out today. Yeah, had a lot of people interested in. And yeah, they had the it link. got canceled. It got canceled <laughs> because the frustrating thing from my perspective is I get no engagement when I share stuff unless I set up the privacy setting. But I just learned the hard way that when I deactivate the privacy setting, it cancels a space. Yeah, so I don't think anything's do working the way that they want it to be right now. We have kind no. of a cool discussion today lined up. Yes, um, I, uh, I'm but going yeah, to, we should. Uh, I'm going to try and retweet and get some folks in here because I know our audience will have some cool points to make. Yeah. Everyone, please retweet this one. Sorry for the confusion, but we're trying to figure out how to game the algorithm right now to actually get eyes on these things so we can have uh, a good open dialogue. Mike Kanovitz. Mike, I'm going to invite you up shortly. Let me just do our opening disclaimer, and then we will talk about your project and what you're building in this space, which Sounds like an interesting solution to what a lot of lawyers had envisioned the blockchain would do when it comes to verifying information, especially court information. So I'm very curious to learn about this. Welcome, everyone, to LexLine. We bring it uh, along with our friends at Rug Radio, hosted by yours truly, Carlo and Jenko, where we talk about new and emerging legal developments in Web3, blockchain, and cryptocurrency law. Nothing we talk about should ever be considered legal or financial advice. If you have a specific legal question, we encourage you to contact a lawyer, consult with a lawyer privately. Don't do it on a recorded Twitter space because we record these things. And if you come up to speak, you're going to be rebroadcast and it'll be across our many platforms and it'll be in the form of clips as well, potentially. So you're on notice if you come up to talk. We'd love to hear from you, but just know we're going to rebroadcast it. So with that being said, today we have a guest. He is a builder in the space. His uh, Twitter profile is in the space right now, Jurent Network. Jurent Network is a pioneering uh, new project in the field of on-chain legal rights for blockchain and Web3. And we have one of the founders, Mike Kanovitz, who is in the house. Mike is uh, our guest today, thanks to Matt, who... Uh, actually introduced us and recommended we bring them up as a guest today. So, Mike, I'd love for you to introduce yourself, and I'd love to learn about what you're building in this space, especially since it does seem to overlap with what blockchain lawyers are trying to achieve in the space. So, welcome. Hey, thanks, GM. Nice to get, GM. Yeah, nice to get a chance to be on. I've, uh, I've had the had the opportunity to listen in a couple times. I've never gotten the chance to speak before, but I really enjoy the conversations that you guys are uh, you guys are spinning on here. Thank you. We're very fortunate to have a great community of lawyers and people interested in Web three and blockchain law who join us, and it's it's fun. It's definitely given us an opportunity to learn and build a skill set in this space which is kind of unique because there aren't many platforms out there to learn this stuff. So we try to create a platform to enable people to come in and have a conversation, debate these legal concepts and learn how to better apply this technology when it comes to web three law. So welcome. Tell us what you're doing. How does 
Jurits, how does Jurit solve this problem? Because this is something that when I first got interested in blockchain technology was one of the big things that I thought the blockchain could solve. For example, uh, one of the one of the things I always read about is how blockchain could confirm ownership of property, for example, so that if you had a corrupt government that went in and took everyone's property rights away and purged all the property records, you'd always have some on-chain proof that you owned your property that no one can tamper with, that tamper-resistant component. So I'm curious to learn how you all are, are coming into this and approaching that when it comes to blockchain verification. So, yeah, so, so what we're trying to accomplish is, is what we call on-chain enforcement. And the idea behind that is that blockchains should have the capacity to comply with court orders in the same way that a person would and, and must or a corporation would and must. And through that, people could successfully enforce property rights on chain. So, for example, uh, if you if you connect your wallet to a DAP and it turns out it was a, a fraud and your coins get stolen, you should be able to go into court. And if you can prove that that's what happened and get a court order, you know, the blockchain should be able to follow that court order the same as if, you know, your stolen property ended up in a safe deposit box in a bank. Or, you know, if you're an artist and you've issued an NFT and, uh, you know, terms and conditions say, you know, don't use that for a commercial purpose and you find that it is being used for a commercial purpose, well, you should be able to enforce your contract rights um, and get an effective order to essentially enjoin that use of the NFT on chain. Uh, similarly to if you, if, if there was a copyright situation going on and, and you took a takedown order to a website where that copyright infringement was taking place. And so, that, so that's, that's oh, oh, go ahead. Yeah, so basically what we've been working on are tools and methods to accomplish that in ways that are consistent with the norms of decentralization so that all the good things about blockchain get preserved. I, I guess that that's very interesting, super interesting take. And I didn't know kind of what you're what you're trying to tackle, but that's a very interesting angle. Um are they tools for all chains or is it its own chain, which then would enforce these rights? So, is so that the, a fair question? Yeah, totally. The, the tool itself is basically uh, a protocol and a, and a method for, for nodes to interface with the court. So it takes, it, it can take place at layer one or it could take place at the, at the smart contract level. Uh, Thus far, we have built it into its own layer one blockchain, but the the concept itself is is more of a protocol than than a than a freestanding blockchain. That's really interesting. So the nodes would, you know, in practice, review a court order in some way, and then validate that. And then say, okay, that that's a valid court order, and now we are going to enforce it or comply with it. Yeah, am I getting too nitty gritty? No, 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 not at all. It, you're 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 right on. So so the 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 problem that we 
we're trying to engineer around is how do you eliminate an intermediary from the process of interpreting a court order and then communicating that to the blockchain in an authoritative way? Because if, if you have someone like that in the middle, you've, you've now violated decentralization. You've got a central point of failure. Uh, you've got an intermediary uh, with, with control over the blockchain. And so that, you know, that, that, that couldn't be part of the situation. So, so the, the hard problem uh, that we solved, or, or one of them, was how to take a court order and make it directly understandable by a node such that a node could go out if, 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 uh, if, if a transaction was entered on the blockchain and it's not signed with the private key for the affected account, the node could go out there, look at the court docket and satisfy itself that a, a valid court order is, is requiring this transaction. And so, um, you know, obviously there has to be an electronic docketing system. It's got to be a trusted court. You know, we only support at this point, we only support federal courts and one state court. Uh, and then um, each, each node can go out and look at it and reach consensus in the same way they would about reaching consensus whether a transaction was properly signed with a private key that the court order is in fact uh, authorizing this transaction. That's interesting. And, and to be fair, Matt, who's just you know a friend and a great contributor to the show, introduced you to LexLine as an opportunity for a discussion. This isn't an ad and we, I really don't, I'm, I don't even know my opinion on it. So I appreciate you just coming in cold and answering questions from just curious folks. I, I don't know if we need to form an opinion on, on good or bad as a product, but it's definitely interesting. I just kind of support anyone kind of who's trying to build anything. It's difficult and we'll probably end up with a spectrum of solutions at any point, but it's very, very, very interesting approach. I'm going to table my question and give Dory the mic. Um, did you have a comment or question? Welcome. I, I did. Thank you so much, Mike. I, I'm, um, I'm addressing this in the context of having been a former litigator for 10 years, who is now an artist who um, participates in Web3. Um, so I find this to be incredibly fascinating. And I'm terrible. I don't know anything about coding. So you'll have to indulge me a little bit. But I guess what I'm trying to figure out in a scenario where, for example, my one of one pieces um, would not, uh, collectors of my work don't have consent to um, convert in physical form, for example, um, my artwork. If I were to find, and, and I'm thinking out loud here, so um, forgive me, but if I did come upon somebody who was breaching in some way the um, terms and conditions of ownership of one of my pieces. I think one of the first things I would do if I knew who it was would be to issue like a cease and desist letter from my attorney on my behalf in physical form um, and also uh, post it publicly on the blockchain um, to the extent that I could. But I'm wondering, is, is this a way of either complementing or circumventing, um, for example, if a court issues an order, um, 
in, in I'm going to say in real life, but of course this is all real life, um, which is which is issued against a uh, senator collector, um, presumably. And are are you offering a means of communicating that on the blockchain directly so that he, she, or they are on further notice of that um, that decision or that that enforceable uh, order? So, uh, so uh, thank, thanks for the question. A, a couple thoughts uh, in in that hypothetical. If if what you're going at is somebody displaying the work, you know in real life, let's, let's say they've, they've blown it up and, and it's being displayed in a gallery, then that can take place the way any sort of, you know, uh, real world piece of property litigation would take place today. You can, you can get an order, serve it on the gallery and force them to take it down. There's not um, a blockchain transaction to undo. Exactly. But okay. let's say, let's say that the, the, the contract behind the NFT says, should you do such a thing, you forfeit the NFT, then you would need some way to cause the blockchain to enforce that particular uh, decision if, if a court agrees with you. Uh, and then that's where what we're trying to accomplish would, would come in. Thank you. Can you, can you walk me through, thanks, Dory, and stay up here and, and jump in with anything. Mike, can you walk me through a... I guess you have, but another real world example where this practically plays out and people are happy and it doesn't just spurn. I guess my question, my second question is, is wouldn't it just spurn further litigation? Um, but maybe not. Like how, how does this play out in another real world example? Yeah, because the interesting thing, me? the interesting thing that I'm seeing here is it's the nodes are not the adjudicator of the dispute. The court is, but then they the validate court- the the right. order in a way. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. So what another type of order, how this could play out, I, I don't want to put you on, on the spot, but a, a, if you've thought hard about a good example that would make it real to me, if that makes sense, yeah. where a dispute, because I don't, I don't know of a, a license where they say, if you blow it up in the gallery, you, you lose the NFT. Is there something applicable to the, to the web three world as it stands? Yeah. So, um, thanks, man. And that's yeah, yeah, a of course. question. Of course. Yeah. I mean, and some of this is, is hypothetical because the industry is, is developing and, you know, we feel, you know, some sort of solution along the lines of what we're trying to pursue is, is important to help the industry develop. But, you know, let, let's think and about I do too. I yeah. think it's an important solution, an important problem to think about. I, I, so I, thanks for indulging us on this combo. Absolutely. So, so one of the things I think about is, you know, tokenized uh, real estate. So if, if I were going to take my house, uh, make the deed a token, and then and then float that on the blockchain, and then, you know, maybe maybe I've I've locked it up and essentially taken out a mortgage that way, but then someone in real life goes and gets a judgment against me, and asserts a, a lien, you know, I don't know, it's a mechanics lien or it's a judgment lien or something like that, you know, there has to be some way for that to be reflected in the ownership of the NFT if that NFT is really going to be a tokenized version of my house. And so, 
that either happens because at the end of the day, there's some sort of custodian that can, you know, through a smart contract, make changes in the ownership, in which case you haven't really accomplished decentralization. You might as well keep it at the clerk's office. Exactly. Or I have the so ability. This protocol will allow for those future applications. That's that's I get it now. That's a great example. Finish your thought, though. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, no. You, 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 you got there before I did. So Carla, you mentioned, you well, you mentioned DMCA's and how this might have a use case when you have a DMCA takedown letter that's gone out. So walk me through to understand how practically speaking that would that would work in the NFT world if you have if you have someone DMCA saying you need to take this down. This is a blatant copyright or, or trademark violation. How would this particular application? move that needle forward and enforcing the DMCA takedown? So um, this is not the part that we've built yet. And I, I can describe the, the, the blockchain that we've built with this incorporated in a minute. But the way it would essentially work is that a court would have the ability to make a contract call. So any, any contract call that the owner could make, a court could make. And so depending upon what the relief that the court thought was proper, uh, they could uh, the court could transfer that NFT uh, to an account uh, that is escrowed or controlled by uh, the the artist. The court could uh, find ways of making a a contract call inside whatever smart contract was currently displaying the NFT to uh, uh, you know basically change the state inside of that smart contract such that the NFT is not being displayed. You know, the actual uh, relief that the court decides is the right way to go about it is, you know, something that I think would play out over time. What we would be doing, though, is giving the court the ability to make a smart contract call for any smart contract on that chain. Uh, here's a here's a follow up question on that, because to my understanding, you'd have to reach some kind of a consensus among the nodes to do this because there has to be, in any blockchain transaction, there has to be a consensus. So how does the court enforce it across the, the, the network of those blockchain nodes in order for them to reach that necessary consensus? Right. So, so there has to be, if you're doing it at layer one, and, and, and you could just do this more as like an Oracle system for a smart contract. But if you're doing it layer one, there has to be a protocol that's incorporated in layer one for the nodes to go out, look at the court docket, know what it is that they're looking for in the court order. And then each of them decide for themselves, yes, that's in the court order. I can accept this transaction. So in a in a very simplified case you know you could have uh you know think about a, a contract case and there's a thousand different issues that can come up there's what's the interpretation how much damages uh are there uh you know did the plaintiff try to mitigate their damages you know what's the salvage value and there's no way a computer is going to be able to accommodate for all of those factors but it doesn't have to because at the end of the day, what the, 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 the change that the court order requires comes down to a transferring of a certain amount of coin from 
one owner to another owner. And that's something that a court can make computer readable simply by including it within the, the filed order. So in this case, you know, PDF on PACER, for example. And the, the protocol that we're using to, uh, to let the nodes do that is essentially to create a hash of, of the transaction that would be uh, required uh, if, if you were going to award the, the plaintiff what they're asking for. And the plaintiff can generate that. And if the defendant thinks that the damages should be less, the defendant can generate their own hash. And then those get tendered to the court the same way that you would tell the court about a bank account number or an amount of money. And if the court sides with the plaintiff, it can include the plaintiff's hash. If it sides with the defendant, it can include the defendant's hash. And then that's something that a, that a, that a node can recognize. So it doesn't need to understand what the court, how the court got there. It just needs to understand the very specific transaction that the court uh, would require in order to implement its decision. Awesome. We've got a great group in the house today, including some lawyers that are that are that are regulars. Pablo, love to see you out there. Uh, love to see Shumper Girl. I hope I didn't screw that up, but thank you. I knew you wanted to attend today, so I'm glad you're out there. Ellie's here. Uh, Dory, you got your hand up. I'd love to hear your question. And anyone else who'd like to come up and ask a question, you're welcome to. Ira, you're in the house. So if you have any thoughts you want to share, Ira, after Dory, you know you're welcome. Thank you. Um, Mike, I continue to be fascinated by this. Um, this may be a silly question, but I never have a problem asking silly questions. <laughs> uh, is It sounds as if um, cooperation by the courts is uh, a necessity in order for this to, to function as you envision it. And if, I, if I'm not mistaken, and that is the case, um, how many... Courts, if any, have have you been able to to connect with and and coordinate this with at this point? Um, just just real curious about that particular factor. Yeah. So uh, yeah, it, it does require the cooperation of a judge, but in a in a very minimal way. And and you know, one of the things that we thought hard about when we were trying to figure out if we could do this in a in a way that's both friendly to decentralization and friendly to the courts is that we couldn't really tell the courts to change anything about how they usually go about doing their business. So they don't need to, you know, uh, they don't need to ha have a wallet and log in and interface in any way. All they need to do is take this one piece of information from the litigants and include it in their order, which is what they already do. So, you know, if there was a, if there was a garnishment order for a bank account, the litigants would provide the bank account number to the court and that bank account number would, would end up in the order. So there's nothing other than courts not being, being used to in, you know, uh, making an order that, that affects the blockchain. There's nothing about it that's any different than what they normally do. Uh, to answer, as far as courts that have used it, uh, we have a bit of a chicken in the egg problem because until there's an actual case or controversy that arises from people using the blockchain that we've only recently created, you know, you can't just go into court and file a lawsuit about it. But what we have done is we've had uh, a settlement uh, be paid in a uh, court interfacing coin that we had created. And that we did that in the uh, 
District of Massachusetts, so the federal district court in Massachusetts, in Boston, and uh, the court didn't have a problem entering the order. Well, I went to law school in in Boston, so I'm happy to hear that. Um, <laughs> it it seems as though you know the moving party could could easily provide whatever information is necessary to the court at the appropriate time. Um, maybe you should get a hold of the uh, the folks in the Metaburkin trial, and they can uh, <coughs> they can provide some some uh, some some nice sponsorship of this particular uh, function. I like it. Mike, I want to, um, in your opinion, I, I don't want to be critical or put you in, the, in a tough spot, but I think that it's, it's a really great idea, really interesting concept, but you have to ask on the other side, um, why would the, I think the real estate title is a great example because you can move it out of city hall onto a blockchain that is still subject to the government. Um, but outside of that, like, like, like private assets or NFTs or private club memberships or IP licenses, do you see creators wanting this? Like, where's the, where are the tensions that you found as you've explored this issue and who, who is for it and who's against it? Who does it help more? Is it a one-to-one or does it kind of lift all, all boats? Yeah. So, um, so great question and, and uh, no need to apologize. And, and there's definitely, you know, this, this raises issues and, uh, and, I, and I'm really pleased to get a chance to discuss them. So uh, I hope you didn't rug Mike. Oh, can you hear me? Yeah, better now. Repeat what you just yeah, said. Yeah, so I, I actually do think that that it, that it raises all ships because if you take a step back, you know, property is worth more when you have certainty that you can enforce your legal rights in it. So, you know, if, if you live in a neighborhood that's that's crime ridden and people are likely to break into your house, your house is going to be worth less than the exact same piece of property sitting in a neighborhood that is safer, that has better law enforcement in it. And so I, I do believe that, you know, taking taking the longer view, digital assets will be more valuable when people know that they can enforce their legal rights. And, uh, you know, an example that that I think about is, you know, just just mainstream commerce. If people want to if companies want to accept Bitcoin the same way they would accept something uh, like a visa payment, they are not, not the people that we're used to or, you know, Web3 nerds, but everybody else out there is going to want to know that they're not going to lose their legal rights if if they forget their key or if somebody's able to trick them. Uh, and so I think that long term, people are going to if, if, if blockchain is going to become the backbone of mainstream commerce, people are going to expect to enjoy the same legal rights that they would in the current uh, you know financial rails. So. So if this is if this is a Shopify blockchain or an NFL or or, a, or I, I totally see it at a retail level, um, fundamentally, the enforceability of the U.S. government brings a lot of value. I, I really appreciate that. Carlo, what do you think? Ira, we have you up here who's somebody, Mike, you should know, um, someone who's practiced law for a while in the technology space, but really 
thought a lot about these very issues that you're tackling. So um, I'm glad I had the the opportunity to introduce Ira. Welcome. Hey, thanks a lot, Ray, Carlo. Nice to meet you, Mike. Hey, um, I just started looking over your website. I think, I think, um, hold on, just give me a second. All right. Got all sorts of stuff going on. I'm multitasking right now. Um, people just run into my office. So, um, Okay, so it, I think what you're building is inevitable. And the heckle that I have is that, you know, I sit kind of like right in the middle. You know, when I try introducing a lot of the concepts that you have in Jurat, I get heckled by the decentralization folks. And when I, um, you know, when I go too far to decentralization, we can't accommodate all sorts of legal compliance. So yeah. I think it's inevitable that um, there's going to be issues are raised you know, let's face it, if an NFT is infringing, it's not really the token that's infringing. It's the artwork. And the artwork doesn't usually live on the blockchain, but it lives on something else that's decentralized, which is like IPFS. And so now what happens if you can't even do a DMCA takedown and the blockchain part almost becomes irrelevant because the infringing uh, images and, and works are still manifesting. There's so many different variables that you have a combinatorial explosion that many ways the stuff you're working on absolutely important probably really great for b2b but for DeFi and decentralized maxis that's not where they want to go that's where they'll go only when they're forced to do it that way and so that's kind of the the problem that i see is 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 that um, Do you see a future of many options where if I'm creating an asset or if I'm a municipality and I'm considering putting real estate out there, Mike's available option is something to consider. And, you know, the unregulated ETH or Matic is another one. It may become required, but Probably. the devil's in the details because right now what Mike is building for the blockchain the legal departments at Amazon, Google, and Microsoft and others who are gigantic ISPs handle every day. They handle the competing tensions. And I've done it myself. I mean, I've built, you know, I, I work for these giant ISPs over my career. And then we'll get in competing judgments. We'll get one in from like Europe. We'll get one in from Asia. We'll get one in from the United States. Ah, uh, that's a great point. And, and now competing all of a sudden. valid judgment. <laughs> wow. And now all of a sudden it's a race to race judicata. And um, Mike's going to have to figure out a way to handle that and not get so burdened into bankruptcy because those things cost money. They require lawyers to make judgment calls. They re some jurisdictions have CDA immunity where something won't be taken down ever. Others don't. And the DMCA stuff is almost irrelevant, you know, to the token. It's more important to like, what do you do? Like AR weave. You can't remove anything. It's on the blockchain. And with IPFS, it's supposed to be self-healing. It's like BitTorrent. So the way I see it is I do think that Mike is onto something with B2B, with government, with folks who have compliance regulations who are compliance-oriented. But I think the vast majority of folks would say, why would I want to trade You know, Amazon, Twitter, Microsoft's, their judgment calls for removing things or, or giving a remedy? for a group of nodes where arguably it may be harder for me to heckle the nodes than it would be for me to heckle one entity. So it's, you got to decide what you want. 
Especially Ira, because the nodes are dispersed throughout the world. So how would you confirm that you've got a consensus of nodes when you've got them in different jurisdictions is also something that comes to mind. Um, Wendy, you came up to speak. One thing I wanted to touch on before we bring Wendy up is, Mike, we have this ongoing problem in the NFT space of flagged NFTs. It's a problem that is really, really uh, vexing to both the person who's been the victim of the of the phishing fraud, the potential bona fide purchaser who thereafter buys that flagged NFT before it gets flagged. And then we have this whole litany of contention between who should get that NFT back. Should it be the person who got fished? Should it be the bona fide purchaser who gets to keep it? Should it be the fraudster? Do you see any application? Because it sounds from what Ira is saying, your application is more suited for a B2B, maybe on its own standalone chain and with the terms and conditions agreed to up front than in a more decentralized problem like we're seeing with flagged NFTs. Um, have you thought about how to, how to address flagged NFTs with this solution? So I, I haven't thought specifically about flagged NFTs, but I definitely thought about the, you know, the bona fide purchaser for value. Uh, issue because anytime you've got assets that can flow pretty freely, <clears throat> you've got to be able to accommodate for the rights of the innocent person that takes them. And, you know, I think that the ability to bring that before a court is the perfect way to resolve it. You know, right now it's hard to say who should own that NFT because there's no referee. But I mean, there are laws out there, you know, property law is ancient and it deals with these issues. And so, if you can bring that NFT before a court and let a court declare uh, whose rights uh, are ultimately the ones that are going to control uh, applying applying property law, then that that solves that problem. You have to have a referee. In yeah, situations I think like that. I think what you're ultimately designed here, and Carlo, it goes to your question. I'm surprised, Mike. You said, "Well, we don't deal with the flagged NFTs." The flagged NFTs is a process, like Ira pointed out. It's not Amazon, but it's OpenSea internally making their adjudication. I think what Mike's Mike's putting a, an endpoint to the blockchain's infinite um, madness and saying the courts will decide, and he's kind of connecting the two. Like, like, um, is, is that a, is that a fair way? Because there are these inherent disputes in this new technology. Things move quickly. There's liquid. There's anonymity. But ultimately, instead of reinventing the wheel for all of these issues, you can just outsource it to the courts that you work with and then validate their decisions it, in a decentralized it, way. Yeah, I mean, that, that is how I see it. And actually, uh, Ira, circ circling back to your point about what do you do with conflicting court orders, you know, there are rules of, of race judicata out there and collateral estoppel. And, you know, for example, one of them is the, the, the if you got two contradictory orders, the last in time uh, is the one that, that is supposed to govern. But of course, that depends upon what the race judicata rules are of the court that has jurisdiction over that case. And so as long as as long as I am providing a pathway for the court ruling to get effectuated, it's the court that is going to decide, you know, whether wh which order is going to is going to. Mike, here, here's, here, here's, here's Ira, before I let you, I just want to conceptually understand this before you you guys go beyond my my head again. If it's 
under dispute or ambiguous or openly being litigated, the nodes won't validate one over the other, right? So we wouldn't get these errant transaction repeals or or possibly. The nodes are going to execute, and this is only within the world of whichever courts we're supporting, but the nodes are going to execute the first final order that gets entered. And then if down the road, somebody is essentially able to, you know, collaterally attack that order and get a second court to do something different. And that court goes ahead and enters the order. Then the nodes nodes validate that that order undoes the previous one. And then they undo it again. They keep bouncing the asset around. They don't, I mean, they they don't validate whether the, the court was correctly undid that, that, that prior order. All they do is validate that the, it was referencing that prior order and that you undo it, just that it's a valid order. Okay. Even even less, really, with their, with the, when the court accepts the collateral attack, it'll specify the the relief and the court, the, the nodes will will validate that there is a final court order entered by a supported court that and you says that I relief. should accept this transaction. Got it. Before okay. we kick it to think, Ira, how do you how before we kick it to Ira, how do you practically speaking get the order to the nodes? What is the delivery system for that? What does that look like? So so there's two parts of it. Uh, one is I just if I'm a successful litigant, <clears throat> I go to the blockchain and I enter a transaction uh, into the mempool. The transaction isn't signed by the affected account because you know, I, I don't have the private key to that account. That's why I had to go to court. And I identify the information, uh, you know, by docket number, court number, and, and specific, or, uh, you know, case number in specific court. And then the nodes can go check that. And if, it ver- if, if the hash is there that corresponds with the unsigned transaction that I've entered, then each node will accept that transaction in turn into the block. I gotcha. Ira, uh, and I'd love to hear from Wendy. So, so so it's one of those things where I can't decide to, whether to yell at Mike or hug him, probably both. This is inevitable. Uh, in order for some folks to be able to use a blockchain, you can't have anarchy. You have to have a rules-based system, and there has to be a way to get remedies. And so that's my hug. I suppose my heckle is that this really is a private intranet in disguise. It happens to use the blockchain. And blockchains are very helpful. But it's not the blockchain that we all are talking about when we usually go into these spaces. It's more like the Chase Manhattan Bank blockchain and things of that nature, not not as much Ethereum. And so there's definitely going to be use cases for this. Which is a good option for some. Yeah, yeah, but then I also have to say, Mike, that in, in in a really large way, just like AWS and Microsoft and other companies that can provide an intranet that happens to have a blockchain on it, your ability and your blockchain's ability to implement is contractual. At the end of the day, you could put all these rules that you're describing for comity and for priority uh, into whatever the terms of use and click wrap agreement is that folks have to agree to to use your blockchain Without that, there may be chaos. I mean, if you have a, a court, you know, if you want to prioritize American law, that, that's fine. But if you have a court, you know, in, in some foreign land where somebody offended the dictator and now wants something taken down, 
which may not get comedy in the United States, then you're going to run into all the things that I used to run into when I used to work with ISPs about um, can you even do IP address firewalling? So maybe something can't appear in one jurisdiction, but can appear in another. You're going to have an endless supply of controversy where you're going to have to get compensated. And then folks who disagree, if you disagree with the nodes, let's say you breach your agreement on how you implement, how does someone get a remedy against Jurat? I could see that also being compounded by the sanctions component of things, because if you got a sanctioned nation like North Korea, and we've just seen that they're one of the biggest facilitators of blockchain fraud, now you've got a, let's say you've got a North Korean judgment that now is being foisted on the nodes. That, that's an interesting, so you're saying, Ira, put the terms of choice of venue, controlling venue, directly in the terms of the original NFT to, to avoid that? Well, I mean, I think with Jurat, in order for it to be able to effectuate this nodes-based situation, it's going to have to be contractual. Um, I don't know if it's an implied contract, over a contract, and how it implements it. And then it's going to also have its situations where it makes mistakes. Sometimes in the United States, ISPs still have CDA immunity when it makes mistakes. Other times, it has DMCA immunity. But in many ways, Jurat is basically honoring the obvious point that in order for some blockchains to uh, tech technologies to exist, you have to honor court orders. But really the only practical way to do that is by having folks under a contract to use it. I want to kick it back to Mike to respond to that. And then definitely Wendy, you're up next. I promise. Uh, yeah. So, so Ira, you're able to write, you know, right off the cuff, uh, run up a bunch of things that we've had to spend a lot of time thinking about. And I'll just, I'll give you the, 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 the thoughts that we have on that. You know, in, in a lot of ways, whatever blockchain you, you choose to get on, you're entering into a contract because, you know, you're charged with an understanding of how it works. Um, and a, a blockchain that has Jurat built into it is, is the same situation. You're accepting that the digital assets are going to function in a way that you know they'll they'll work the way they normally would on a blockchain, but if there's a court order out there, they're going to respond to it. Uh, that said, for the for the uh, you know the the layer one blockchain that we've already created, which is a Bitcoin fork, there actually is a, a, a terms of use. Uh, if you're mining on it, you're accepting it because the the software uh, announces it, and if you're downloading the wallet, you're accepting it because you're clicking yes. Uh, and that terms of use uh, does accomplish things like specifying jurisdiction and venue for where to bring a case. Uh, as far as how to deal with the you know rogue state problem, we're only right now, like I said, we're only supporting uh, federal, uh, you know, U.S. federal courts and a couple state courts. Um, and as far as as far as our company is concerned, we would only ever support court systems that had your due process rights on par with, with what we enjoy in the United States. It's yeah, right the North now, Korea example wasn't fair, but go ahead. No, 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 it's, it's all good. Um, so, but, but let's say for some reason you did go get a, uh, a, a judgment in, in North Korea and, uh, and uh, about a, a digital asset, you're welcome to come to the United States and try to have it enforced as a matter of comedy 
And if it's a, you know, if it's a legitimate judgment, I don't know, maybe courts would do that. But, but, you know, U.S. based courts are perfectly capable of enforcing the orders of foreign courts to the extent that, that that's appropriate. That's a great response. And all of the points are really outliers where this can solve for the the middle part of the bell curve a lot of things like a private blockchain like Ira acknowledged. It's not what we're all used to, but to hold deeds, um, I think, is necessary. I don't think they just go on Ethereum. Um, Carlo, where do do we go to Wendy? Let's go to Wendy. Welcome, Wendy. Hello. Happy Friday. Um, actually, my question is very similar to Dory's question about how uh, this would affect the infrastructure of a court. Um, but I was kind of curious as to whether might you talk to members of the judiciary or um, people involved in the court system when you were working to develop this. Um, so I, I talked to uh, some retired judges that are now uh, uh, arbitrators and mediators. Uh, I've not had active discussions with with sitting judges. Yeah, I was just kind of curious as to how members of the judiciary would see this if private litigants came in and um, opted to use this type of system. What the opinion of the court would be? Yeah, I think I think they'll have to be educated on a on a case by case basis to start. You know, I, I remember, I don't know, I've been practicing uh, quite a while. And I remember when, you know, the, the Westlaw reps had to come around and teach everybody how to do it because they didn't teach you that in law school. Um, and, uh, you know, may, maybe it'll be something similar like that. I'm not sure. But ultimately, the, you know, we're not really asking anything technical of the court because the litigants really are just providing competing codes uh, and, and the court can decide that through the adversary process. Mike, wouldn't, wouldn't, um, wouldn't ironically Jurat be, be best suited by using a minimally distributed blockchain? In other words, if you have a click wrap agreement and you're just using AWS and you're using their blockchain system, which has all the benefits of a blockchain, and it's going to be distributed enough so it's self-healing. Isn't that it? I mean, basically, you want the best of the blockchain. You don't need huge decentralization because here it might hurt because you could have rogue nodes or folks who are not compliant. You basically want to have tight enforcement. Isn't it just a simple matter of just using like AWS blockchain instance, few nodes, game over? So I, mean, I think every blockchain or most blockchains want to be as decentralized as they can be for the for the benefits and security that you get uh, from that. I see I see Gerard as a protocol incorporated in open public blockchains. Uh, the one that we've created for now, we're uh, we're letting it uh, be mined by attorneys, so it, it is a it's permissioned in that sense, but. You know, it's not. Uh, it, it, it is. It's. It's a Bitcoin core fork. It's not. It's not uh, relying on AWS, other than to the extent that people are spinning up their nodes on AWS. And you know, I, to, there are some compromises versus the the maxi situation where you know they don't want the government having any say so and anything having to do with their assets. You know, even though they're sitting in a house and driving a car and owning a bank account that the government has say so over and 
never really seems to come along and just seize it from them. Um, and then there's the people who wouldn't touch blockchain with a 10 foot pole if they thought that they, they couldn't enforce their rights. And, and, you know, so I do think that for purposes of public blockchains, if, if they're going to fulfill the vision that we all have for them and, and hope that they do fulfill, it, it should be a generally available option. And, you know, if, if some blockchain, public blockchains adopt it and some don't, uh, then people, you know, consumers will have a choice and, and we'll see, you know, where, where they where they want to be putting their business. Uh, the, the rogue node problem uh, is not something that um, I've really thought through very much. But, I, you know, because it's a blockchain and, and consensus is what matters, uh, and, and we haven't opened it up yet, but I do envision a time where we will completely open it up. Uh, if if some nodes go rogue, then they'll basically be creating a fork. Uh, and you know, the, the virtuous nodes uh, will stick with what the court has ordered. Fascinating. Matt, you were one of our speakers in the house today that has not come up to talk. So before we wrap it up, coming up on the hour, anything you want to add? Questions for Mike? No, just thank you guys for for having Jurat and team up um, and having this conversation. I became interested because you know I see the need for the middle ground um, as much as people, you know, decentralization uh, maxis want to fight it. Uh, you know, I, I just think that we're bound to get there, and um, we we need something like this, and this is starting to solve that problem. So thank you guys for for having this conversation today. And I, I just appreciate that we can have the conversation and talk about, you know, this product and, and some of the solutions we're seeing in working towards in this space, you know, be, being addressed. So that's that's really all I have to say. I mean, I could keep talking. You know that. <laughs> <laughs> but that's really all I have to say now. Yeah. yeah. If, if I could, I'd like to give Matt a shout out to uh, for uh, he's one of our Gerard early adopter club uh, attorneys. And it's been a real pleasure getting to talk through this sort of thing with him. And uh, I'm grateful for the introduction and the chance to participate in the conversation. Awesome. Thank Mike, you, Mike. It's, it's been a pleasure to meet you. Um, I think we all came away from this with some more things to think about. Um, we're always going to see there's going to be this tension between the decentralized and the more centralized notion of how to enforce rights on the blockchain. Um, you're definitely thinking about this in a direction that's interesting. Now Matt puts his hand up. Okay, Matt. What? Oh, sorry. I don't know if it's too late, if there's not enough time, but Jurad also has another product um, that's rolling out soon. I don't know, Mike, if you want to talk about it, um, Zappo and, and that <laughs> stuff, but uh that was another thing I don't think that we got to speak about, which is another fascinating piece of tech that's solving some of the blockchain issues that, that, you know, that we see. So I, I appreciate the opportunity for the shameless plug. Um, the, uh, the, the, that, what, what Matt's talking about is, a, is an app that we're coming out with that we're trying to make smart contracts usable in a way where they're, they're, invisible to the people that are using them, you know, which is what everybody says is the ultimate future of Web3 is that you can engage and take advantage of the utility without having to have any idea that that's what's that's what's driving your app. And it'll 
It'll basically be a way for people to set up incredibly inexpensive escrows to protect both sides of the transaction when they're dealing with each other at a distance. So, for example, you know, if you're a freelancer, you can make sure that your payment is escrowed before you have to start work. And if you're the if you're the client, you can make sure that if for some reason the 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 freelancer isn't delivering uh, either at all, or you know the contract isn't really it's not up to up to snuff. You've got uh, a, a a referee in the mix to make sure that you get your money back to the extent that you should. Very interesting. You know, we've talked about that as well. Um, it's it's almost unfortunate that for people who are new to this technology, they have to be onboarded by not even knowing they're using this technology, but that is definitely a debate we can save for another day. Matt, thank you for, uh, for posing the question. Mike, thank you for joining us today. Ira, uh, Dory, thank you for your questions. Wendy, we always love to see you out there. Jenko, another great close to another awesome week of LexLine. I hope that everyone has a wonderful weekend. Girl in the metaverse is in the house. She just jumped in. I love what she's doing out there. Um, she puts out some great content, and we appreciate you joining us today as well. You know you can always replay this. Uh, we'll put out a clip, I'm sure, uh, kind of given the TLDR on this conversation, and you can always catch the full space, and eventually it will get uploaded to iTunes and to Spotify as well. Thank you to everyone, and I hope you have a wonderful, wonderful weekend. Thank you again, Mike, for joining the conversation. Definitely left us with some things to think about. Thanks, guys. Pleasure to get to talk to you all. Thanks a lot, Mike. Those are um, worthwhile projects to spend your time on. It's, it, I, I'm glad you came and shared. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks, Carlo. Take care, everybody.